two days from now, on October 31st, the celebration at the forefront of most people's mind will be the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, right? No, <laughs> wrong. Uh, it'll be Halloween. Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm all for trick-or-treating, but this morning I would like to invite us to spend at least a few moments reflecting on the other event happening this Tuesday, the anniversary of October 31st, 1517, which Luther would have thought of not as Halloween, but of All Hallows' Eve, the day before All Saints' Day. The day when a 34-year-old monk um, nailed a large parchment, it was actually a giant kind of rectangular sheet of parchment. He may have actually glued it, but nailing makes for a more dramatic story. that such an act uh, would typically have of posting these uh, list of disputations or propositions for debate that typically would have found it most a limited audience within academia. Luther taught at the local university. But in this case, these ideas, they spread quickly and they sparked this controversy that grew far out of Luther's control. You all have your monk robes ready to dress up as Martin Luther for Halloween, right? Right? We'll see. Uh, in all seriousness, he could actually be a pretty scary guy. Um, to be frank, he was also incredibly sexist and anti-Semitic, in addition to being anti-Catholic. We should note those things and be honest with him about Luther. And he was, in general, not afraid to boldly criticize his opponents. Have any of you seen the Luther Insulter webpage? So you click on Insult Me Again, and it draw it, it quotes uh, one of the insult, many, many insults from Luther's uh, writings. Here's just a few examples. You are like swine who indiscriminately devour everything. If you click on insult me again, you get you are a priesthood of Satan. Click it again, you get you forgot to purge yourself with a hellebore. I'm not actually sure what that is. While you were preparing to fabricate this lie. A final example. I despise your whorish imprudence. It goes on. You can just keep clicking. There are a lot of insults to get through. Seriously, uh, Luther died a few centuries too early because he would have slayed on Twitter. (laughs) And even though he didn't have social media on his side, his ideas went viral. His success in spreading his thoughts is even more impressive since uh, 500 years ago, Wittenberg was, I suspect, quite unlike uh, Danielle's experience visiting it today. 500 years ago, Wittenberg was a backwater. Uh, The number one thing you would have remembered after visiting Wittenberg was probably mud. Muddy houses, unclean lanes, every path, every step, every street full of mud. The nailing of the 95 theses to the church door, again, it makes for this dramatic story, but it wasn't actually that as much as a paradigm-shifting innovation 77 years earlier that really made Martin Luther much more than a voice crying in the wilderness. Because in 1440, Johannes Wittenberg had, Gutenberg had developed a printing, pro- a printing process using movable type. So while the church authorities were really dragging their feet in response to Luther, uh, because he also sent letters, he didn't just post them on the door, while they were dragging their feet, his ideas were spreading like wildfire. There was a huge readership for them, lay as well as clerical. Within just two months, they were known all over Germany and soon well beyond. So Luther really was this significant catalyst for change, but what is unappreciated for the most part is that the actual changes he made from his perspective were inadvertent, 
They were improbable, and they were, for the most part, unintentional. I'll say more about all of those. He also never had control of this Reformation that he launched. Luther was really this obscure, unknown figure who he intended to make a courageous stand to reform what he thought was the one true church of Roman Catholicism. He ended up sundering the unity of Roman Catholicism forever and can even be credited with starting the process of secularization in the West, which he would be appalled about. Uh, In general, if he could glimpse the state of religion in the West 500 years later, he would be horrified. The gap between Luther's intent and his impact has been compared to a man in darkness, climbing a winding staircase in the steeple of an ancient cathedral. In the blackness, he reaches out to steady himself and lays hold of a rope that turns out is attached to a giant bell, and it just kept Ringing, And those reverberations continue really unto today, even into our own tradition of Unitarian Universalism, which is part of the radical wing of the Reformation, far beyond what Luther intentioned. We, too, would horrify Luther. I'm okay with that, but it's still true. Uh, So what was Luther so upset about in the first place? One of the main triggers of his ire was known as the indulgence scandal. According to medieval Roman Catholic theology, one could buy an indulgence to reduce divine punishment for sins. It was said that as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, so you drop it in, plink, the soul from purgatory springs. But Luther did not believe that the church had the authority to buy and sell salvation. Rather, he thought that one was saved or not by God's grace, what was known as sola gratia, grace alone, irrespective of human action. Now, that may seem today to many of us like an obscure theological debate, but it really mattered then. It really mattered economically because indulgences were a huge income stream for the medieval church, and it really mattered psycho-spiritually. It would be difficult to overemphasize the amount of religious despair and overwhelming sinfulness that Luther felt as a monk. He just really felt that he was inadequate. He was constantly questioning his own salvation. So to, to come to this conclusion that it didn't matter what he did, that it was all on God, not him, that was just liberating for him in a way that it may be impossible to us to appreciate as modern people, not medieval people. Luther's conviction through studying a line from Paul's uh, letter to Romans in the Bible that salvation comes again from God's grace and not human merit, from that perspective for him, that meant that selling indulgences was wrongheaded, it was abusive, and it was offensive. Now the other side would have argued something differently, right? But to briefly consider the larger context, it's not incredibly surprising that Luther came to this insight. He was, after all, not just any monk. He was an Augustinian monk named for the 4th century saint Augustine of Hippo, who himself, a thousand years before Luther was born, strongly emphasized God's grace over human merit. A turning point from Luther was deeply and repeatedly meditating on a particular verse in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, and it is written the one who is righteous will live by faith. 
Now, don't tell Luther that if you turn to the very next chapter, much less to the book of James, which he really hated, he called James a right strawy gospel because it disagreed with his perspective. But if you turn just to the very next chapter of Romans, chapter 2, verse 13, you find, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, that sounds a lot like what Luther would have called works righteousness, but don't tell him, he'll just get upset and insult you. Now, from our vantage point 500 years later, we get to ask odd questions like whether debates that people were killed over even still matter anymore. So I was fascinated to discover that the Pew Research Center actually did a survey on that precise question a few months ago to investigate what is the state of the Reformation argument today. On the questions are, do you believe humans are saved by grace alone or human merit? It turns out that about half of U.S. Protestants, 52%, say that both good deeds and faith in God are needed to get to heaven. That's a fine thing for a Protestant to believe. The trick is it's the historically Catholic position. It's the position precisely the one that Luther fought so hard to oppose. He believed so strongly that it was faith alone, not human merit. The survey also showed that among U.S. Protestants, 52% say that Christians should look for guidance from both church teachings and church traditions, um, so not just the Bible. The, uh, again, that's a fine thing to believe. It just happens to be the thing that is the traditional Catholic belief, not the one that, again, that Luther struggled so strongly against. It's fine to look to multiple sources. We use tend to be a both and, not an either or people. But Luther believed in sola scriptura, scripture alone. Uh, and you should interpret that, and that trumps anything in church tradition. And in general, as you use, we tend to shift the paradigm altogether. We're, we just, we're not worried about the next world. We tend to be worried about this world. We tend to substitute ethics for theology. As the saying goes, we believe in deeds, not creeds, and that you, have to, you don't have to believe alike to love alike. And here in the early 21st century, as heirs to the insights of modern science, we just tend not to share either Luther's conclusions, nor do we even feel the burden of the questions that to him were so vital and to the other reformers 500 years ago. Nevertheless, we can perhaps at least respect that he did have the courage of his convictions, though we should say terrorists have the courage of their convictions, right? One person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter, so it depends on who you talk to. Nevertheless, in 1521, four years after he nailed those 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, he was called to stand before none other than the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. So that's like today, it would be like if you were called to stand before the president, Supreme Court, and Congress, whose power was all represented in one person, right? This is a, a huge deal for this little obscure monk. And before the emperor's throne, literally with the cardinal sh shouting at him, recant, acknowledge your error, that is what the pope wants, Luther would just not be cowed. He said, as long as these scripture passages stand, right, sola scriptura, it's, it's not about what you say, it's about scripture alone for him. As long as these scripture passages stand, I cannot do otherwise, for I know that I must obey God rather than men. I do not want to be compelled to affirm something contrary to my conscience. So for a commoner to stand up before the emperor and the most powerful princes in the empire and to resist the might of the church, which at that time was quite mighty, 
That was as, as, was as extraordinary as it was unforgettable for people then. It was a defining event. It did his willingness to do that, to stand and take the consequences, whatever may come. That was really what won people over to his side and helped get people to share his hopes and expectations much more than his theology. It was his courage. Most famously, his stance was distilled into the famous line attributed to him, here I stand, I can do no other. He really said a lot more than that, but that was the sort of distillation that circulated. Today, though, even if intolerance to religious pluralism is still, uh, is still alive and well in many parts of our country, it's still relatively easy here in the U.S. to do what we use call building your own theology. But that was something you just didn't have the freedom to do in the same way in Luther's era. And the emperor decided that it hardly seemed likely that one monk was right and that centuries of learned theologians were wrong. So he declared Luther an outlaw. He forbade anyone to house him or eat with him, banned the sale, reading, possession, or printing of his books. The problem was the cat was already out of the bag. Since Luther risked so much to reform perceived corruptions, though, I do think one of the lessons for us today is to see how much of a cautionary tale it is that how, that the long-term results of his courageous actions were very much impacted by what is sometimes called the law of unintended consequences. Sometimes your actions have the precise result that you anticipate. Other times the outcome can be significantly better or significantly worse than anything that you expect in advance. And the truth is that 500 years later, Martin Luther would be horrified by most of the long-term consequences of the Reformation. Luther's intent was to make the church society and the culture more thoroughly Christian. Instead, it's become much less thoroughly Christian. And he meant his particular interpretation of Christianity, not even just Christian Christian generally, which he honestly thought was the one true correct understanding. He hoped that claiming the freedom to interpret scripture and tradition according to the best of his ability over against church authorities meant that everyone would use that same freedom and come to see what he saw and come to his exact conclusions. He did not foresee the actual result, which was a proliferation of other individuals doing likewise and coming to quite different conclusions. On that point, Luther is often deeply misunderstood as an advocate for every individual having freedom of conscience. He cared nothing about your conscience. Luther was not modern. What he meant by freedom and conscience were not what we mean by those words today. He meant our capacity to know with God, a knowledge that he believed led to objective truth. He thought he had done that and knew the objective truth, and clearly if you um, did not agree with him, you had what would be called bad conscience. Because he thought he had the one true interpretation, he was willing to risk everything many times over, and he did. He was willing to risk being martyred. It is ridiculous that he didn't get martyred. Like, it's truly astounding. Uh, So other people did. Uh, But he was willing to risk everything to convince others to view this position because he viewed it as righteous. But instead of everyone jumping on his bandwagon, it turns out he just opened a Pandora's box of competing biblical interpretations, of rival interpretations of Protestantism. And that word Protestant was coined in 1529, and buried within it, of course, is the word protest, right? We are Protestants. Uh, 
We, you use are one of the results of what do you get if you just, over the centuries, keep pushing the boundaries of protest. Protest a way about, uh, against tradition, against community, against um, hierarchy, and toward reason and individual experience. And I'd be remiss if I didn't spend at least a few minutes saying, well, what were our Unitarian forebears doing during this time in the 16th century? I'll limit myself painfully to just one example because I would like to say a lot more. Uh, And that example is Michael Servetus. I'll revisit a second one, Francis David, in January when we'll celebrate the 450th anniversary of the Edict of Torta. The Edict of Torta was a, uh, I know you all know about that already, right? This is the, uh, it's a land, some of you I'm sure do, uh, was a, landmark act of religious toleration um, by history's only Unitarian king. Both Servetus and David were born within a few years of Luther nailing his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door, so they were sort of the next generation. As Luther had done, Servetus read the Bible for himself, but in contrast to what Luther thought would happen, he didn't come to the same conclusions that Luther came to. Instead, what stood out most to Servetus, and he was like, let me read this again, he noticed The Bible never says the word Trinity. He was shocked to learn that Trinitarianism that he saw as was this major source of what was keeping Christians divided from Jews and Muslims, even causing them to kill each other. He says, that seems to me like a non-essential post-biblical doctrine if you're going to go with sola scriptura, scripture alone. However, in the same way that Luther naively thought that people would agree with his interpretation, Servetus thought that people were going to celebrate learning that the Trinity could be viewed as optional. They did not celebrate. In 1533, he published a book with the not very subtle title, On the Errors of the Trinity. His intent was to tear down a wall that he thought was needlessly separating the Abrahamic faiths of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam that all traced their roots back to the historical figure of Abraham. May or may not have been historical, that's another sermon. Uh, Tragically, his views led him to be burned at the stake by none other than John Calvin for the heresies of anti-Trinitarianism and anti-Pedobaptism. That means being against child baptism. So Servetus thought we shouldn't baptize children, we should wait till they're old enough to discern for themselves what they believed. Unitarian Universalism is sometimes called a chosen faith, the something you have to choose freely for yourself. It's also called a cho- chosen faith because that word heresy that so many of our ancestors recalled over the years, that simply comes from the Greek word to choose. They're just saying, you chooser, right? You're a heretic. You're a chooser. You're choosing for yourself instead of believing what we're telling you to believe. Ironically, many of the reformers, including Luther and Calvin, they didn't actually emphasize the Trinity that much uh, in their teachings. Nevertheless, they were unwilling to grant the same freedom to proto-Unitarians that they themselves sought from Rome. That same unwillingness to grant freedom of innovation to others that you want for yourself is also what led Francis Davids to be imprisoned and to die in prison. Uh, But I'll say more about him in January. For now, 500 years after that fateful day of October 31st, 1517, when one individual dared resist the religious and political powers that be, we find ourselves in our present situation of what could be called hyper-pluralism instead of the monoculture of one true church. We come to be in a state of hyper-pluralism because individualism and liberalism have succeeded so much, even if we might wish they had succeeded more. 
But here is the truly perverse result from Luther's perspective. In seeking an individual freedom of religion that he hoped would reform the one true church, what he did was create the possibility that individuals might choose freedom from religion, thereby helping seed the secularization that is the modern West. Today in the Western world, which in Luther's day was massively dominated by Christendom in a way that's hard for us to appreciate. If you in any way feel oppressed by Christian supremacy, go back 500 years and it was a whole different story. Today, for the most part in the West, you can believe whatever you want. You can live however you wish, especially in private within the laws of the state. And so can everyone else. That's both a great blessing and occasionally a big problem. Here we are, so very free more or less, but also so very far away from Martin Luther and what he started in a small town of, in Germany 500 years ago. Today we use heirs to the radical wing of the Reformation. You can see that among other places in our fourth principle, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. Leave you with two final thoughts, and then we might have Time for just a comment or two. So if there's something that's kind of come up for you or particularly resonated, be thinking about that. The two things I'll leave you with. One is when you talk about the pluralism that we find ourselves in, so instead of everyone having to conform to one, you know, doctrine or one, you know, we have now a pluralism. So negotiating that is a skill sometimes called intercultural competency. So how do we become more competent at negotiating multiple cultures? And if there's one lesson from that related to the law of unintended consequences, it's that intent doesn't always equal impact. Right, and that my impact on one, my in, the same thing I may do that may really helpful to some people may be super offensive to somebody else. Right, that there, there may be so to think about that that's becoming interculturally competent, realizing that intent doesn't equal impact, and it's it's and it goes into things like the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and I may not intend to step on your foot. But your foot still hurts, right? Even though I didn't intend to step on it. So that, that's something to think about and to get better at and to be, uh, to strive to be less defensive around. You know, someone lets you know about something to say, oh, I didn't know that. Thank you for letting me know instead of, that wasn't my intention. Well, realize intent doesn't equal impact, right? The second thing, thinking about, so it was really Johannes Gutenberg and his inventing of the movable printing press that made Luther's uh, impact able to be so great. I would invite you to think about the ways in which it might be Google that's the new Gutenberg, right, that uh, in shaping our, and we'll say more about that in some, uh, I'll say some more next month in a sermon about uh, biotechnology and some more in the spring in a sermon about artificial intelligence, but uh, any other, uh, before I move into the benediction, any, anybody have something really came up for them this morning that resonated with you or another insight or thought about this on the occasion of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation? Doug? I think one of the most dramatic moments in the history of Western civilization is the one you referred to in the sermon. When Luther an Augustinian monk, without the backing of his order, stood up against Charles V, the most powerful ruler in the world, one person against the most mighty ruler. And it is an act of heroism and martyrdom that's almost hard to believe. Right. Yeah. He said, Emperor, you have no clothes, right? <laughs> Did you have something, Mary? 
When you just mentioned about impact and intention, the book that the book club is reading this month is sometimes brilliant and about getting the um, plague, smallpox plague stopped in India and just a, a fantastic autobiography and, you know, just amazing if you want to read it and or join us. Mm-hmm. Very good. So this, the small book about smallpox for the book club. Any other final thoughts? All right, so in thinking about how you can't always control your impact, you can at least try to have a good intent if knowing that it doesn't, uh, even if that impact may be different than what you intend. So in that spirit, may you each continue, may we each continue our journey in love. Care for one another, care for this one earth, do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.